This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers television pod special. One of the joys of the Netflix march to ubiquity is a torrent of simply fantastic global TV it's made available to American audiences through its spigot, like Australia and New Zealand collab, Top of the Lake, or Norway's magnificent Nobel. My guest today is the co-creator and star of one of those global breakout hits, the Israeli television sensation, Fauda, a political thriller about an Israeli army special ops team that's trained to go undercover in the West Bank disguised as Palestinians to carry out covert missions. It's based on a real-life military unit, the Mr. Aravim. And in the very first episode, they pass themselves off as a Palestinian catering staff to infiltrate a wedding and attempt to capture a Hamas suicide bombing mastermind. Perhaps not surprisingly, if you know that Fauda is Arabic for chaos, the plan goes awry. An innocent defenseless young groom loses his life and the narrative clatters along at breakneck speed from there. Here's what's unusual and singular about the show. By giving equal screen time to the perspective and motivations of its Arab characters and granting them as complex backstories as the Israeli protagonists, it's got a startling even-handedness. There are no good guys and bad guys. The series is filled with compassion and empathy for both sides of the political conflict, really in a way I've not seen since The Wire. It's an Israeli television show that presents Palestinian terrorists as devoted husbands, fathers, brothers, and that portrays the Israeli military as far from beyond reproach. They can be trigger-heavy. They can experience a numbing relationship with violence. But above all, it's just a fantastic, riveting piece of entertainment a local sensation that's grown, thanks to Netflix, into an international sleeper hit. It's currently doing massive numbers globally and has become one of the most buzzed about series bubbling up in the United States. I can't encourage you enough to give it a binge watch with subtitles, not with the dubbing, which appears to be the default setting. And like all dubbing, is a violation. So without further ado, gives me great pleasure, it really does, to welcome to the pod a gent who mined his own experiences in one of those secretive commando units to become the co-creator, writer, and star of Fowder, in which he plays the role of Israeli protagonist Doron, an officer who comes out of retirement to rejoin the special forces and attempt to fend off a legendary Hamas bomber. Join me in saying shalom. Or, Salam alaikum. Oh, a man Fader magazine called a Bear Sheva Jason Bourne. Welcome to the pod, Mr. Leo Raz. Hi, hi, how are you? Congratulations on it all. Thank you very much. Your backstory first, Leo. You were a member of Israel's Mr. Avim, that undercover counterterrorism commando unit. Can you describe what it is and how it does what it does? It's a special unit very special unit that actually Israel created in order to avoid mass casualties. You have to go inside 
at difficult and crazy places in order to, to pick and to take just one terrorist instead of bombing a whole uh, neighborhood or something like that. So you risk, risk your life in order to do that. You have to be amazing actor because you're going to be an undercover and you have to go inside territories with different language, different body language, different clothes, different smell, everything. You have to be an amazing actor and a very cool guy because there is a lot of things that happening around you and you have to avoid all the noises and just concentrate on your the thing that you've been sent to do. I mean, that getting inside to me is fascinating because you're a soldier. Yeah. You have an enemy. Yeah. But in your role, you have to train in the language, the dress, the culture, the mannerisms of your enemy. In effect, you have to become your enemy as opposed to objectifying and depersonalizing them. Exactly. This is the paradox of being an undercover. In order to be a good undercover... Uh, you have to love the language. You have to love the culture. You want to be just like them. You know, you can see in the show that they're talking between themselves in Arabic, you know, the Israeli soldiers. And they just act and behave like Arabs and they love it. And you not fight against all Arabs. You fight just against one terrorist you should bring to jail. How many years did you do this for? I was in the army for three years, mandatory, and then for reserve, you know, in Israel, you do a reserve. It's just like one month in a year. So for three years, formative years, because this was in your youth. Yeah. You, you know, the college, 18 the, till the college years for, yeah. for, for Americans. I mean, this is your formative transitional time. You're essentially operating daily under conditions of hysterical stress. Yes, hysterical. When you are there, you don't think it's hysterical. You think you're doing your job and you're doing it uh, very well. You, you like it, you love it, and you want to participate in more and more operations because this is your goal and this is what you want to do. And you don't see it as a crazy thing. You see it just as a normal thing. You think you're just a normal, you know. You play like just James Bond a little bit, so it's nice. Oh, you're making me have Roger Moore feelings. But, uh, yeah. you know, James Bond... An incredible fictional character who would stroll into casinos. Everyone knew who he was. We meet again, Mr. Bond. They even knew what drink he wanted to have. Yeah. You guys are quite the opposite because yeah. you guys are having to pass yourself off. And I want, I want to know, Fowder means chaos. It also means when an operation's blowing. In your training, what were you taught to do with fear? There is no fear. But fear's an emotion. It's not a rational thing. You're right. So what do you do? How do they train that out of you? Um, I'm asking for my own personal benefit. <laughs> there is a scene. The woman asks the soldier, how do you do that? He say that they are just like combat dogs. They've been trained to be like combat dogs. Yes, and you're doing it just like the Navy SEALs. You're in a fight zone. So when you're in a fight zone, you have the adrenaline rush. When you have an adrenaline rush, there is no space or time to fear. You just want to do your thing. When you go home, back later, 20 years later... Then you think about it. I mean, just listening to you talk about this explains one of the major themes of the show, the price both sides pay for the conflict at the personal level. One of the themes of Fowder is about trauma, grappling with trauma and post-trauma. I think in Israel, 75% of the population have PTSD, post-traumatic disorder. 
I went to psychologist eight years ago for the first time in my life because I got married, so I, I really scared. <laughs> <laughs> that was that, finally that, you were introduced that, yeah. to the emotion I feel uh, every day that fear yeah that that was really scary <laughs> and uh, the first session I told my therapist if we can ch- change places because I want to sit with my eyes to the door and he said okay let's work on your other problem now and then he <laughs> but you know what now I know that all the symptoms that I had before the show vanished gone just because I wrote about it, I talked about it. I actually played, again, a role of someone who was there. It was a drama therapy, writing therapy, everything. So I don't have, I can sit now in, you know, with my back to the door and I don't care. It's a healing process through creation. Yeah, that is fascinating to me because when I watched Fowder, I spent a huge amount of time trying to think how the two of you, the creators, you and co-creator Avi Isikaroff, to possibly post-trauma, special op commandos, how you summon the empathy to create Fowder, a show that's so nuanced, so dual in its perspective. That was the motivation almost. It was almost a healing. No, I didn't know it's going to be a healing process. Avi is a journalist. He specialized in the Middle East and Arab territories and all the mess that we have in Israel. He's, he's a specialist. He's an amazing guy and he's very talented and very smart. We met and I just puked all the stories that I had in my, in my imagination and in, from, from real life as well. In America, that's called podcasting, that process. <laughs> we are a good team, me and Avi. We are a really good team. I'm an actor. I came from the creative side. He's a journalist and he, he knows he has a lot of knowledge. And as you see in Fauda, we showed the politics between the Palestinians inside of the Palestinian society. And this thing is just because of Avi, because he knows it so well. I didn't want to get hail from post-trauma. I just wanted to tell a story to Israeli audience. So the storytelling was the motivation? Because just the aesthetic of that storytelling, I mean, right from the off, you humanize Hamas. I mean, the antagonist, or I guess you could say he's the co-protagonist of this, Mm -hmm. Abu Ahmed, the fictional terrorists, his backstories, killed 116 Israelis. But you show him from the off, struggling to cling on to his family life, like Tony Soprano, but in, I guess, an even more extreme reality. Exactly. I don't like television shows or movies that the bad guys are just a flat bad guys. It's not interesting anymore. Television-wise, we wanted to show them as a human beings. They have their kids, they have their wives, and... I remember that I went to the writer's room and I said, I'm an actor and I want to be able and love to play each and every character in the show. And in order to do that, they have to be around characters. And we have to show them in a way that you can connect it to. And for me as an actor, you know, many times they, they gave me the bad guys to, to, to play the bad guys. I don't know why. Viewers who are listening to this as a podcast, let me just interject here an editorial note. Lior is a beautiful bald <laughs> that's probably why they made you the menacing kid. we're always typecast we're always the bad guys you're right so it for us it was a, something that was always in our mind and actually i i know some about so many stories in the israeli-palestinian conflict that israel caught terrorists just because of their love to their wives they were so obsessed with their wives so they sent pictures, sent flowers, sent perfume, 
And then Israel could track that and cut them. So we are human beings. The effect was remarkable. When it aired in Israel, viewers, they loved the terrorists and they didn't understand why. They felt compassion. Abu Ahmad, the biggest terrorist in, on the show, when he went to the West Bank, so there is some uh, barriers with soldiers and they all took selfie with him because they loved him. Even in real life? In real life, yeah. They loved him. And for me as well, Arabs love my characters because we did few things. First of all, we honored the language because we love Arabic. We really, if you see it, if, and if you understand Arabic, we're talking an amazing accent and we put many Arabic music and just we honor... 75% of the show is in Arab, Arabic. Probably 65, 75%, yeah, yeah. The creation, it wasn't just an objective, creative act for you. I mean, there's a saying in Israel that the show was written in blood. It, it, you've already said it was grounded in a pain, a trauma that you, like many Israeli and Palestinians, have experienced firsthand. There's a suicide bomb of a Tel Aviv bar early on in the series, and that show is dedicated in the credits to Irisa Zulai. Who was she? She was my girlfriend. Uh, okay. Um, when I was 19, I had a beautiful, amazing girlfriend named Iris Azulai. We were together for three years since we were 16. She was my sweet love. My, my, I, I really, we, we had an amazing uh, love story between us. And when she was 19, she went out from her home in Jerusalem and a Palestinian terrorist came and stabbed her to death. Her and another two, Charlie Shlush and Eli Altaratz, three people, and he got caught, and they put him in jail. And actually, I didn't talk about Iris for really something like 20 years, not with my family, not with my friends, but when we started to sit, me and Avi together and write the show, Avi knew her. We knew each other from Jerusalem, me and Avi, and just since we were young. And he said, told me, listen, Leo, let's, let's talk about Iris. Let's, let's write about her. And, and he convinced me, and actually we wrote a role about a woman who's dying in a terror attack and how it affects her boyfriend who serve in the same unit and how he received it. And it was just like I had when I was young. And just the text that we are, they, they are talking there, just the text that me and Iris used to talk, you know. And also it's, um, it's quite hard to uh, imagine yourself doing an audition to a, actress that's supposed to play your dead girlfriend it's not so easy so this thing was also a healing process for me because something that i didn't talk about for many years now i'm talking about it with you and we wrote about it and what's so special and happened because of the show that because we dedicated the episode to iris hundreds of thousands of people all over the world just now searching her name and her story and for me, and I think for a family as well, it's, it's, it's a big present, you know? I cannot imagine how that must have felt. I'm fascinated by that creative impulse to heal, or at least to unrepress. What, what about the Israeli-Arab actors who played the Hamas and the Palestinian Authority characters? Were their voices, were their experiences folded into the creative process? Sure. In the beginning, it was very hard to hire them because they thought, okay, we have another show about the terrorists, so we will be the bad guys, the Israeli will kill us. <laughs> but then me and Avi talked to them and, and showed them how we feel about it and what they can achieve from participating in the show. And 
you know, when we started to work on it, rehearsing. So we heard them. If they wanted to change a little bit the text, we gave them the opportunity to do that. When we started shooting the show in August 15, there was a, a war between Israel and Gaza, Operative Edge, we call it. It was very hard. Missiles were coming down on us while we were shooting in Kfar Qasem, and it's an Arab village in Israel. So Jewish Muslims together for a month and a half working in a creative bubble with passion for cinema and for television and create a creation. And it was an amazing uh, experience for all of us. I think everyone will remember this summer because it was so intense and so hard, but it was so warm and so full with love for many people on the set and on the show that they were sitting every day, three times a day, eating with Arabs, actors and talking, even though it wasn't during the war. Hamas reviewed the series on its website. Yeah. <laughs> which I love, I love the, the idea that Hamas dabbled in television criticism. What did they say? I'm not quoting them, but I think they asked the audience not to see the show. And because it's an Israeli Zionist show, and because we can't kill them on field, we're killing them on television. And it's paid by the Israeli government. Of course not. I wish. And then, <laughs> and then they said, it was a big review, and then they, said, they, they put the link for the first episode of the YouTube. <laughs> so they said, don't watch it. Yeah. But then with a wink, they said, here's the yes, link. Yes, yes. So you take that as meaning they secretly loved it? I don't know. I don't know. But I know that Avi now is going, you know, interview a lot of terrorists and a lot of Hamas members in Israel and in the West Bank. And they all see Fauda. And we know it for sure. It's like the mafia. When you interview them in New York, they all watch The Godfather. Exactly. And then they all start to act like The Godfather. Yeah. Essentially, <laughs> Fauda has become like The Godfather of Hamas. Oh, it's too... It's, uh, the Godfather is, is amazing. Don't, we can't compare it to The Godfather. <sighs> what about the world? I mean, I'm fascinated. Throughout the Gulf, throughout the Arab world, mm -hmm. I mean, this thing has become a, a phenomenal cult hit. Abu Ahmad, the, the actor, uh, went to Qatar and he told me that... He, He couldn't walk on the streets because everyone wanted to, to take a picture of him. <laughs> <laughs> the fictional terrorist mastermind has become a yeah. massive celebrity. Yeah, and listen, he's not a terrorist at all. He's an amazing person in life. He's a very peaceful guy, and, and I love him. He's an amazing guy. Season two begins shooting in June. How much is it going to pick up where it left off, and to what extent will it move on to reflect current news realities in the Middle East? It's going to be much more personal story and, and it's going to talk about revenge. And we're going to see characters from the first season as well, Palestinians and Israelis. The stories continue, like in Israel. If you catch one terrorist, the other one will come immediately. And then the chase is continuing all the time until someone will say stop. It's the same story over and over and over again. I mean, it's a traumatic drama, but it makes for great television. And there is something about Israeli television. It's a tiny juggernaut, Leo. I mean, thinking about you coming today, I thought about the, just the glut of shows that have made it out of Israel and become global formats, Prisoners of War, which the Showtime series Homeland's based on. It's mm -hmm. gone to 20 countries around the world. HBO's In Treatment which is originally an Israeli drama. You're right, yeah. Betipool. Betipool, yes. Been remade in 25 countries. Israeli television 
is so young. It's half Regis Philbin's age, still so tiny. What is it about the Israeli television industry that it's such an incubator which makes its creations translate well overseas? First of all, the budgets that we have are so tiny. I can't tell you how much, but it's so small. So affordable, so cheap, these shows you develop. Yes, yes, so cheap. One episode that you shoot here in New York cost like the whole series in Israel. Not of our show, listeners. (laughs) But Israeli television, let's just say it's not big on period dramas. You're not, you're not making Downton Abbey. In order to make it, you have to be very creative because you don't have the money. So you have to lean on, your, on the story, not, about, not on action. and not Quality on, of the writing, is that what carries exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. And I think the directors are amazing also. And we're bringing our own voice. I love that suboptimal television making is now incredibly on vogue. I find that deeply, deeply validating. But your show is now available in 190 countries. Thank you, Netflix. You've spent most of your career as an Israeli actor, which is, listeners, it's a bit like being big in Canada, but probably not even. (laughs) Now, you've got a global profile. What's the most profound way that your life has changed? It's happened in the last three months. I'll tell you a story that happened to me when I went to Miami two months ago and I went to the immigration. I have an Israeli passport, so they're asking you very hard questions. Why are you here? And what are you doing here? And I was, you know, I was standing in, on the, in the line and I was, I, I just tried to understand what she's, going, what, she, what she's going to ask me. And I wrote about that I'm coming for business and for, I came just for promoting my show and I had meetings and everything, it was, everything is, was okay. But I was, I was afraid, you know, interrogation, it's frightening. I, I like to interrogate, not to, to be interrogated. <laughs> and just kidding. And I went there and this woman, this officer asked me, she looked at me in the eyes and then she asked me, what about second season of Fauda? <laughs> and I was shocked. How has it been for you engaging Hollywood? Uh, I bet it was probably easier doing undercover ops in the West Bank. <laughs> yeah. I'm not feeling like a superstar here. I'm not feeling like a well-known actor here. I'm, I'm, I'm okay, you know. Sometimes people recognize me, sometimes they're not. I want to make more movies here and more TV shows here. Fame, it's just a byproduct of the thing that you love to do. And I want to continue act and continue write and continue to do the thing that I love. Fame is just a byproduct. Here's what I think you've got going for you in Hollywood, Leo. I'm going to put myself into the mind of your agent. I, I, do think, I do think there's a huge audience, particularly in this country, of just beautiful bald men who will go and watch. And I've tested this out. Bruce Willis and Jason Statham, they will go and watch their movies solely to watch a fellow bull man kick non bull men's asses. <laughs> you know what? I thought, <laughs> funny. I remember that I told my wife a few years ago, I, said, I told her, listen, see, there is no bull man in television. No bull man. You can never see on news. They used to say a bull man cannot become president of the United States of America. That's why certain politicians cling on to their hair to such an extent. Bull men, not televisual, not electable. Exactly, not electable and cannot be stars of shows. Yep. But now in the last As few we years... we found out to our peril. <laughs> in the last few years, you can see Jason Statham, you can see Bruce Willis. Beautiful bald. <laughs> yeah, it's yes. your future. It's your future. Yes. They're not just bald action heroes. They bring a built-in audience. There's 60 million bald men in America. <laughs> Each one of them will buy cinema tickets if you were to star in it. Last couple of questions about you. 
legal, but really about life. What is the secret to learning how to look, speak, behave, and think like your enemy? What is the key? Compassion. You have to know and to try to put your legs and mind and brain in theirs in order to understand them. And not just as enemies. You know, there is a lot of hate in the world. You can say people hate many minorities because they are different than them. In order to know them and accept them, you have to try to think like them and you have to try to feel compassion to them. So lead with empathy. Listening to you now, and what a fascinating journey you've been on through your service, through the trauma that came with the service, into a desire to tell the story about both that service and the trauma, and either accidentally or subconsciously experiencing a healing as a result of all of it. What's the most important life lesson that you take out of all of this, this creative process, the healing that's resulted? I think you have to follow your dream and not be afraid of anything or anyone who telling you that it's bullshit or don't do that. And you know how many broadcasters didn't want our show? So many. We had so many no's on our way to success. Just don't hear it. Just follow your dream. Just go straight and don't let anyone to interrupt you on your way to success. I think you have to dream, decide that you're doing it, and then to create it, but very fast. Don't let life you know, go through and, and, and just waiting for your dreams and, and creation and maybe and, and go for it. Inshallah, Leo Raz, it's a joy to listen to you. Your show is a remarkable piece of television. I really hope listeners get hold of Netflix, get hold of Fowder, binge watch it. I'm really fascinated to hear what you think about it. It is a complicated, challenging piece of television. Watch it. Let me know what you think. Leo Raz, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a big honor for me.